You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show tucks itself into a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until we draw the curtain, we'll be nestled at the intersection of taxation and taxonomy on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today, it's May 2nd, because yesterday just wasn't enough. In the tug of war between faith and forensics, science has often had the privilege of proof. But in a reset match we're losing to a novel opponent, there's little to go on and no certainty in sight. At times there's too much information, though none of it seems true, and the comfort of facts and figures is lost when they shout in opposition. The empirical and objective seem to need more time to surface, but time doesn't wait on our side and takes us down as it ticks on. And in labs, research centers, hospitals, and conference calls, the smartest and most capable minds try to figure out how to slow it down, stop it, and prevent the clock from turning back. This week, we experiment with finding the truth. First, the line is busy, and we wait to get an answer. Then, we get a closer look at looking in on us. Next, we find out everything we can from someone who seems to know it all. Then, our patience is truly tested while we try and try to get one. So next, we look behind us to ancient wisdom for a way forward. And then, we remember that we felt like this before. Next, we get some good advice from family and friends afar. And then, we check the frequency, but all we get is fake news. Next, we check our messages. And finally, we check the weather. And while we're waiting for a time to leave this all behind, for now, we're still down with disease in Brooklyn, USA. A few weeks ago, we heard from two NYPD officers, both sick and dismayed by the department's initial mismanagement of the crisis. They cited lacking protection and inefficient information, and by this week, one of them had finally gotten some answers. The phone was busy for two weeks. I kept calling, couldn't get through. And finally, uh, they called me and they asked me what my condition was, and I explained that I have difficulty uh, breathing, but, you know, I think I'm okay. And they said, well, on the 22nd, go back to work. Yeah, when you're out sick, they don't communicate with you. There's no phone calls, there's no emails, unless you have your department phone or department property with you, which normally you secure it in the department facility. You don't take that home with you because ultimately you're responsible and then you get punished if you lose it. So initially when I got sick, I got no type of guidance on what to do to either get tested or how to get better, um, anything. There was just no guidance whatsoever <clears throat> other than go to work and do your job. And there was no places that police officers could go and get tested. So after a week of symptoms and trying to get better, once I had the strength that I took matters into my own hands and I got tested. 
I found out after the fact that there were some partners that affiliated with a police department and they would test you. But at no point was this information sent to me or I was never aware of that information until a police officer said, hey, this is available. But by then, I already took care of it myself. Mm-hmm. And again, this was way after the fact when police officers were, were starting to get sick, were spreading it to other police officers and pedestrians. And this was weeks of being exposed to people in my precinct that had the virus. I called the Putnam County Department of Health. They gave me some numbers, but first they said, you need to get a script. They also gave me some other phone numbers of doctors who would do virtual visits. They took my insurance. The doctor called me. I uh, interviewed. Then he gave me a script to go get tested. Then I called the phone numbers that the Department of Health gave me, and they sent me to a hospital in Connecticut because they have a good system. So instead of sending me anywhere in New York, they sent me to Connecticut, and I drove there uh, on one of my days off and got tested. The way they had it set up was you drive in the car, you move from one station to another. Every station... um, was clearly printed, and then you get tested and you drive away. It was relatively painless, and I think it took me anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes to go from the beginning to the end. You know, And I didn't fit the criteria. I didn't fit all of the criteria that they, they were asking for. I never had a fever, and they were saying you would have to have a fever. I didn't have a cough, a dry cough. Um, I didn't have a dry cough. So, you know, it was difficult getting tested and waiting for the results. Verbally, they told me it was positive, but I got to get the paperwork, and they're in the process of sending it to me. So it's a, it's, it's a mission. I'm hoping that you know, I, I develop antibodies, and hopefully I am immune to this strain of, of virus until next year, then there might be a new strain of a virus. I have diabetes, and I'm still being exposed to people who have COVID and other things in the place where I work. According to the doctors, I am not contagious, and they sent me back to work. Uh, the first day, again, I was a little tired, and I could tell that the more I walked around, the more I did things, the difficulty breathing was there. So I would say I definitely am somewhere between 95 and 99%. Um, I heard a lot of people passed away because of this uh, virus, and I did not know it was that serious that that it was, I mean, people were passing away. I, it's not easy, and I'm happy that I made it to the other side, and the police department is ramping up on what they're doing, they're handing out masks, they're taking temperatures when you walk in, they're spreading out more. I mean, they're doing complete opposite of what they were doing when this epidemic started. And they're doing things better. It could be a lot better, but it is better. And you can see the difference. I just think they're liable on their their end. I think that eventually there will be some lawsuits when this is said and done.
Sentinel Surveillance Neologism, noun, a form of medical surveillance that uses selected institutions or groups to provide health data on specific diseases or conditions. Etymology, a compound formed by the unhyphenated combination of sentinel and surveillance. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, sentinel refers to one who, or something which, keeps guard. It comes from Middle French, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L-L-E, and Italian, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L-L-A. No convincing etymology has been proposed for the word, but perhaps it comes from the Latin S-E-N-T-I-R-E, to feel, perceive, by the senses. See, sense, noun. Surveillance, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means watch or guard, kept over a person, etc., especially over a suspected person, a prisoner, or the like. Often, spying, supervision. Less commonly, supervision for the purpose of direction or control. Surveillance is a French word derived from sur, over, valer, to watch, which comes from the Latin v-i-g-i-l-a-r-e. Seemingly, a word that came to English from the French Revolution, during which surveillance committees were formed in every French municipality by order of the convention to monitor the actions and movements of suspect persons. Socioelectrical information. The term is used by epidemiologists to describe a model of medical surveillance. A sentinel surveillance system is used when high-quality data are needed about a particular disease that cannot be obtained through a passive system. Whereas most passive surveillance systems receive data from as many health workers or health facilities as possible, a sentinel system works within a limited network of carefully selected reporting sites. Related. Active surveillance, passive surveillance, zero surveillance, rumor surveillance, and syndromic surveillance. Example sentence. Since diagnostic kits were few and far between, public health officials proposed sentinel surveillance asking local hospitals to provide swabs from patients with flu-like symptoms who tested negative for influenza. The health department began collecting swabs, but the mayor's office refused to authorize testing for fear it would create a citywide panic. Eventually, de Blasio backed down, and the New York City Department of Health began testing the samples on March 23rd, almost a month after the swabs were collected. What is a virus? Well, there's nothing like it on Earth. So my definition, my scientific definition would be a virus is a obligate intracellular parasite. We'll explain that in a minute. It's made up of nucleic acid. It can be DNA or RNA and usually has some kind of shell around it. It could be protein or protein and a membrane. My name is Vincent Racaniello. I'm a professor at Columbia University where I do research on viruses here in New York City, of course. And then uh, in my spare time, I write about viruses. I blog about them. I do podcasts. So I eat, breathe, think, dream viruses all the time. <laughs> okay, so let's break it down. Obligate intracellular. So that means... A virus has to get inside of a cell in order to make more of itself. 
on its own, these virus particles, you know, which are very small, you can't see them with the naked eye. You need a very powerful microscope. They're floating around in everything. Every living thing has viruses in it. Uh, they're on most surfaces. They're in the air. They're in the water. The oceans have 10 million viruses per milliliter of ocean water and more viruses in a liter of ocean water than there are people on Earth. That's how small they are. They cannot do anything. They're floating around in the water, in the air. They have to get into a cell. So that's what we mean by obligate intracellular. And then the parasite part means they take over the cell to reprogram it to make more viruses. So they're taking raw materials. They're taking all sorts of things from the cell. It's like the cell is a factory of its own, and then the virus comes in and retools it to make viruses. And eventually the cell dies, and the viruses move on to another host. They have been on Earth since the first cells arose, over a billion years ago. And they will always be here. As long as there's something living on Earth, there will be viruses. There's a whole host of viruses that give you respiratory tract disease. And they range from mild to severe. A common cold is what we call a mild respiratory tract infection. You know, sore throat, maybe cough, scratchiness, mucus production. Uh, and then, of course, we have pneumonia. And many viruses can do that. What sets the, the coronaviruses apart are that whenever a new one infects us, no one has ever seen them. So SARS coronavirus in 2002 emerged from a bat reservoir. No person on Earth had ever seen that virus, so nobody was immune, so it spread through the human population. And now the current one, nobody has any immunity to this. So the first SARS, SARS-1, that was uh, discovered in 2002, but we had already known about two other coronaviruses since the 60s that caused common colds, very mild disease. Nobody bothered about them because no one died and they weren't paid much attention to. Then in 2002, all of a sudden, this severe acute respiratory syndrome virus emerges, and then that focuses attention to the coronaviruses. People start studying them more. They discovered two more seasonal common cold coronaviruses, so now we have four. And then, of course, a few years later, MERS coronavirus emerged uh, in the Middle East, and then, of course, now we have SARS-CoV-2. So we have four seasonal mild coronaviruses and three epidemic coronaviruses. SARS-1, we stopped after about a year. 29 countries, 8,000 people, and then it was stopped. And that's because with SARS-1, over half of the people who got infected were so sick they had to go in the hospital. And in the hospital, it's very easy to control the infection. And eventually, we stopped the transmission. This virus is very different. 80% of infected people have barely any symptoms whatsoever. And so this can spread very easily. Those people are shedding virus and they can go out in the world and spread it. And so that is the key to this virus. Now we are in uh, the end of April, right? So we're going into May. And so this thing is declining. This epidemic is declining. I think it's in large part because of the distancing. It's also in part because the population immunity is growing. And now it's going to get warmer and more humid, and that will also decrease transmission. And so that means to me by June, I think this epidemic will be largely done. This is likely going to be a seasonal infection. It's going to come back in the winter. 
the overall picture will be milder. There'll be a lot of infections, but I think a lot of people who have been infected will get infected again, and they won't even know it. Um, and I think we won't have the burdening of the hospitals happening. And I think we'll get through this winter pretty much unscathed. And I think that's the cycle we're going to see uh, for the next few years until most of the population is immune. And then this will become another seasonal common cold coronavirus. Seasonality is a puzzling character of a virus infection. For the most part, we don't really understand how it works. Influenza is seasonal, where you have a winter and a summer. So in the winter, conditions are dry and it's cold. And so the cold preserves the virus in the environment. But then the droplets that you exhale when you're talking and sneezing and coughing in the uh, winter, they dry out quickly uh, and remain suspended. In the summer, their droplets absorb moisture and they fall to the ground quickly, so their, their ability to transmit is, is impeded. Now, why coronas? Mainly because the seasonal coronas that cause common colds, they're seasonal and they happen in the winter. You rarely see those in the summer. And I think this is going to be just like those. Obviously, we don't know, but I believe the combination of high temperature, humidity, and population immunity will knock down uh, circulation very shortly and this will end up being a seasonal virus after this. Infection to many people means sick, right? But, you know, that's not how we use the word. Infection just means the virus gets in you and multiplies, and you may or may not be sick, because right now you and I both have many viruses in us, but we're not sick, and that's because Viruses can infect you and multiply and grow without making you sick. It's just the rare ones that make you ill. And so that's what we think will happen with uh, this coronavirus. You'll recover from your first infection. You'll have some immunity, which will not prevent infection. The virus will get in you and multiply, but you won't get sick. You might not even know that it's, uh, in fact, growing in you. When you're infected with a virus or any pathogen, your body makes a defense, and that's called immunity. And it has many different aspects to it, but an important part is making antibodies, which are these big proteins that circulate in your blood, they go into your tissues, and they essentially lock down on the viruses and prevent them from infecting. And so that's why you're protected against the next infection, because you have these antibodies that you have made. Now. Judging by how the seasonal common cold coronaviruses behave, you get your first infection when you're a kid. You don't get sick. As you may have noticed from this outbreak, kids are not getting very sick. Some do, but most don't. And that's a feature of these coronaviruses. So the common cold coronaviruses, they get you in your first 10 years of life. You make antibodies, and then they go down within a year after infection to pretty low levels. So you have enough antibody to protect you against disease, but not enough to prevent infection. So I think the same will happen here. I think you'll get infected with SARS-CoV-2. If you survive, you're going to have antibodies. They will decline within a year after infection. You'll get reinfected, but you should not get very serious disease. But the other issue that people are worried about is, are they going to mutate, and then the vaccine won't be any good, or my immunity won't be any good? To which I say, with all the experience we have from coronaviruses, including the four common cold coronaviruses, and the two epidemic, none of those ever changed to evade immunity. 
what happens is the immunity wanes and the viruses can reinfect you, but they don't make you sick. So based on that history, I don't think there's any reason to assume that this virus will change in any way to evade immunity. The unfortunate aspect of this pandemic is that it could have been prevented. But the problem is between pandemics, people don't think about them. It's very hard to get financial support for research that you would need to prevent the next one until it comes. So far in every decade, the last three decades, there has been a new coronavirus outbreak. And so unless we do something, there'll be more. One of the important things to do is get a sense of what's out there. So any new viruses we get are likely to come from mammals. That's the historical record. So let's focus on mammals. Bats are the most numerous. It makes sense to sample them. Wildlife sampling is very difficult. It's hard to pay for. Uh, people don't want to support it because it, we call it a fishing expedition, really, because you're just looking to see what's in the bats. But to, to do wildlife sampling, you have to go somewhere for a good amount of time. You know, you may be away from your family and so forth. So it's not a popular thing to do, and it's not a popular thing to fund. So we need to know what's out there and what has the potential to infect humans uh, by just infecting human cells in the lab with these viruses. And not just bats. Another good candidate for viruses that can infect humans are rodents, maybe animals that live close to us, you know, even dogs and cats and raccoons. So that's on the one hand, we need to know what's out there. But then on the other hand, what are you going to do about it? Well, if you identify viruses in bats and rodents and other mammals that have the potential to infect humans, then you try and make a drug that would block all of them. And you could make a drug that could block any coronavirus from infecting a cell. There are vulnerabilities in those viruses that you can target. You put them in the lab and then you, you run drugs by them and find one that inhibits all of them. It's relatively straightforward. It wouldn't be more than a five years worth of work. This is very typical for drug developments going on now with the new coronavirus in many places to get new drugs that inhibit it. But if you did this, you could find a drug that would inhibit every SARS-like coronavirus for the near future, for sure. I think the main thing that people should know is that the viruses that make you sick are pretty rare. Because you're assaulted with viruses on a daily basis. You eat them all the time. Your food is full of plant and insect viruses, and they pass right through you. They don't do anything. But also, we're colonized with many, many different kinds of viruses. And there's a growing recognition that they probably are beneficial for us, and a lot of research is going into figuring out how that works. And in the terms of the planet, the whole balance of the planet really depends on viruses. So, for example, all those viruses in a liter of seawater, they're doing something. They're actually recycling organic matter so that it can be used. And if not for them, I think we'd be in big trouble. Viruses have this big role to play. And if anything people get from me, I want them to get this idea that they're not here to make us sick. They're actually beneficial. And the sickness is just an accident. So, <clears throat> where do we go from here? <clears throat> Excuse me. 
First, keep doing what we're doing. Stay home because that works. We are flattening the curve. We must continue to flatten the curve. We have to get testing to scale. That is an entirely new exercise. It's something we still haven't done well in this country. Uh, and we need both diagnostic testing and antibody testing. And we need millions and millions of them. And we need them in a matter of weeks, not months. From the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, immunity was the distant beacon. Distant being the operable word. Vaccines, we were told, by everyone but the president, would be at least a year away. But there's also been talk of another potential acquired immunity, this one by infection. So we turn to antibodies, those vital proteins in plasma deployed by our immune system to fight pathogens. Your body produces them during an infection, and history suggests they provide a measure of immunity from future infection or could lessen the blow of reinfection from viruses. And soon, of course, everyone wanted to know if they had them hoping they could confer some kind of protection against COVID. But like the test for the virus itself, antibody tests were hard to come by. So when New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced at the beginning of April that the Department of Health would conduct random antibody testing around the state, I was hoping I could find out where. Thank you for calling the New York State COVID-19 hotline. If you are experiencing an urgent medical issue, please hang up and call 911. Your call will be answered in the order in which it was received. Thank you for calling New York State Coronavirus Hotline. How may I help you? Yeah, I was wondering, do you have any information on where um, one can get an antibody test? Uh, we do not have any information on that. And then on April 20th, the news started reporting that antibody tests were being conducted at supermarkets around the state including several in New York City. But the hotline operators were also in the dark. I mean, we didn't have a heads up on that. We actually found out the same time everybody else did that they were setting up random testing at supermarkets. And I think it's because of the limited amount of testing that they have. They didn't want probably thousands of people to show up for that. Okay, wait. Let me step back for a moment. First, what's the story with the state tests? These are random tests, tests of anyone who may or may not have had symptoms in order for the state to get a clearer picture of the rate of infection. But experts have said it could also be useful for those who've had a positive test for the virus. And I wanted to get the antibody test precisely because I couldn't get tested for the virus. In early March, my 15-year-old stepson came home from high school with a cough. Then on March 16th, my wife got a fever for a day and then lost her sense of smell, one of the symptoms more recently associated with COVID. Then on March 20th, I started getting aches in my chest, and then I lost my sense of smell, and it's yet to fully return. Then about two weeks ago, on April 20th, we wanted to bring my other stepson to the doctor for a lingering foot injury he got while skateboarding, but we had trouble making an appointment. So we called the COVID hotline for the first of many times. Yeah, we, we think we may have been exposed, but we think it's run its course, but they wouldn't allow us to come in until we could certify, I guess, that we did not have the virus. And so we're just trying to figure you know, out. The only thing we can do is take an intake and then the um, positive or not. Sorry, say again. Hello? Hello, hello? 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 
We thought an antibody test might be an adequate substitute for a COVID test, which we were unable to get because we didn't have serious symptoms. So we called half a dozen supermarkets around the state to find out about the antibody tests and heard repeatedly that the Department of Health had come, gone, and may not be coming back. But then we learned that a friend had gotten the elusive test. Hey, Becky, how's it going? It's going well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing okay. So I heard... This is Becky. Her husband had been working in an office in close quarters with someone who tested positive for COVID in March. So I assumed that I had exposure that way. But a few days later, I started feeling chills and a sore throat and thought maybe it was just, you know, a cold or something like that. But it turned into a terrible headache and terrible body aches and fever and cough and fatigue and all of the other symptoms that the CDC has now associated with COVID. And during that time, another friend had sent me a link to Mount Sinai's testing questionnaire, I guess. They were looking for people who could donate plasma to COVID patients. Doctors have been treating serious and life-threatening cases with the plasma of patients who contracted the virus and recovered. And Mount Sinai got back to Becky and invited her to come in after going 14 days symptom-free. You feel like, oh, I won, I won the lottery. I can go get an antibodies test. And mostly I thought it would be great to be able to donate plasma and hopefully, you know, do something to help somebody. So I, I was excited to get it, and I did hope that I would be able to be useful to other people. So she went in on April 20th to get blood drawn. But then a couple of days later, I got the results saying, well, no, they don't show any antibodies. I guess, you know, surprise was my first thought. Um, and, you know, in a certain way, disappointment, you know, I was just really surprised that I didn't have any. And then the test results, they sort of say, okay, you tested negative, but it doesn't really mean anything in the sense that it doesn't really mean you didn't have it. We don't really know. She'd hoped to not only confirm her belief about having been infected and help others with her plasma, but also to use a positive result to enable more freedom of movement, the very thing mayors and governors are trying to negotiate now. I had hoped to visit my parents and thought that the antibodies would give me that sense of that's a okay thing to do. And now whatever sort of safeguard I would have felt that we had if I had gotten a positive result, I don't have anymore, and so I'm just not sure. What Becky was denied was what some are calling, perhaps erroneously, a risk-free certificate or an immunity passport. I hope it's not some sort of passport. I know that there's been use of immune response or antibody titers in the past as some sort of passport, but I hope that that's not how it's going to be used. This is Dr. Jenny Libyan, chair of the Department of Pathology at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University in Maimonides Medical Center. Pathologists are really surprised at what the demand is for antibody testing and that everybody wants to have it. (laughs) We are putting the cart before the horse. We don't know if it gives immunity. We don't know how long the immunity is going to last, and we don't really understand what people want to do with their result. She said pathologists are trying to come up with guidelines for who should get tested and when. So I think the test that has the most utility is when you take somebody who had a molecular diagnostic test and you know they were positive, and then three weeks later you do an antibody test and you look to see whether they have immunoglobulin. To me, that's the most informative. And for the state to be conducting these random tests also makes sense. We had such severely limited ability to test 
four to six weeks ago that we really have no idea how prevalent COVID-19 was in New York City. So the hope is that by testing a lot of people, we'll have an idea of how many people had COVID-19 so we would know what that prevalence was. Last week, on April 23rd, the state reported the initial results of their study that one in five tested positive for the antibody, a higher rate than they'd anticipated. I think it's okay to get the information. I still have concerns about what people are going to do with that information, but if we don't start getting information, we'll never have better guidelines and recommendations. And so this is a time of learning. And so I think that if somebody was symptomatic, even if they didn't have the positive nasopharyngeal swab, I think that there's value in doing an antibody test. But there are still so many unknowns with the virus and its antibodies. And she worries that people may be misinformed by their test results and cling to the dream of an immunity passport that could deliver something close to normalcy. We don't know that it gives anybody immune protection. So are we putting those people at greater risk? Are we encouraging other people to get sick in order to get an immune passport? You know, are we, are we encouraging chickenpox type parties? I think that we should encourage people to stay healthy. I'm concerned about encouraging risky behavior. And then having different classes of people in general is always a worrisome thing. So I asked about the utility for the individual in getting a test. I think it's mostly psychological, therapeutic. I think that there's so much anxiety that just having anything, whether it's positive or negative, seems to have a real calming effect on people. And I'm not quite sure why, but I think there's just so much anxiety about was I sick, was I not sick? And just the knowledge, whichever result it is, seems to to help. (laughs) There's so little certainty these days. Will I lose my job, be able to pay my rent? Will I get sick, lose a loved one? So much is up in the air. Knowing anything for sure can be a source of comfort. The fact that we actually found a way to get a test felt like a small triumph. Do you guys offer the antibody, uh, the COVID antibody test? Yes. You do. And so if I make a, an appointment, just a regular appointment for lab work, could we come in and get that? Yeah, as long as you have a script from your doctor. doctor. After a week of searching and failed efforts to get a call back from the plasma donation programs, my wife saw that LabCorp, a company whose name I would mispronounce, was providing the tests. So we made an appointment, got a prescription, and went in. Um, all right, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here at a LabCorp for my appointment to hopefully get an antibody test. Um, I'm a little bit late. Got to put on my mask and find out where I'm going. Three patients, driver's license or photo ID, backside up on the train. The tablet, please proceed to the tablet to uh, register for front desk. Aside from the elderly man in the waiting room coughing through his mask, things went smoothly at first. And then they didn't. I don't see you on my appointment list here. No? No. I have it. I have a confirmation here. My wife has one at 10. Do you see anything for her? No. So I should have my wife confirm too, right? Okay, she's just with our kids though, outside. So I have to. Okay, thank you. How long have you been doing the antibody test? Since Monday. Have you had a lot of people come in to get them? Yep. And you send the results to my doctor or you? Yeah, your doctor will get the results. 
test for the actual COVID. It just tells you if you have antibodies. Hmm. You know that, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you. Thank so you. I'll have my wife come in. Yep. Okay. Thanks. So just got the test. It was pretty painless. Um, and we'll see. Maybe we'll get the results back tomorrow, maybe the next day. Maybe As I waited for my result, I thought about Becky's ordeal and how an effort to get some grounding can result in even more uncertainty. It just left me a little bit more confused than ever. I almost felt like the test doesn't leave me knowing much more than I did before. Despite all the uncertainty, Dr. Libyan sees a way that testing can eventually be useful in a more global way. I mean, I think that there's some, some things that maybe will come down the line, maybe really soon. Maybe we can say, this person doesn't have antibodies. Let's give them passive immunity. Let's give them some of that convalescent plasma. And they have high risk factors for something. They have diabetes and hypertension, and they're in a very public facing job, or you know, they're a, they're a physician. Um, they have no antibodies. Let's give them antibodies <laughs> as a prophylaxis. Maybe we'll find one of the drugs is actually working as a prophylaxis, so people who are negative can get that. I would rather see things like that, that while we're waiting for a vaccine, that we have other intermediary steps that people at high risk for severe disease, that we, we start to protect them. In the meantime, I was hoping for a positive result, confirmation of my hunch, and the chance that my family and I might be less likely to contract or spread the virus. You know, the thing we all want. When I face existential spiritual challenges in life, and obviously this pandemic would be a perfect example of that, I typically find myself seeking refuge in the work of the medieval Sufi thinker and philosopher Ibn Abdullah Asakendri, whose work Al-Hikam, or the Aphorisms, is one of the most influential works in the history of Islamic mysticism. Which means, do not be surprised when difficulties happen in this worldly abode. It is only revealing its true character and I think that this particular moment we face is a testament to that primordial wisdom. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Danish Farooqi. My name is Maryam Mosri. I'm actually a nurse practitioner that lives in New York City. I am currently a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights at Rutgers University and a doctoral candidate at Duke University. I currently am in the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've actually been working and I still currently work with COVID-19 patients. I've been asked here to share my candid thoughts about Ramadan in the era of COVID. I have my good and my bad days. Um, a lot of people have probably asked, like, how does the pandemic look like, sound like, how do I feel? It's a mix of an, a range of emotions. to say, it's really disorienting to not be able to partake in Tarawih prayer and to not be able to indulge in group iftars. Even though I think it's now day six or day seven, um, 
from a medical perspective, I was hesitant about fasting during COVID-19 just because I wear a, a two masks uh, during work. And so you're not breathing. You are breathing, but you're like, you kind of get dehydrated after a Having while. Having said I mean, that, and this is me speaking perhaps from the perspective of being primarily a scholar of mysticism, I've seen a silver lining in this. Again, everyone has their own philosophy. Everyone knows their own body. So I'm not advocating for anything like, you know, saying, hey, fast, don't fast. But um, it has been um, a unique experience fasting during COVID-19. It's been a wonderful opportunity to reconnect with all these beautiful souls in my purview scattered around the world. And FaceTime and Zoom have been wonderful outlets in that respect. Moreover, There's I have a big sense of loneliness. Uh, the social distancing has put an impact on me. Uh, me being an extrovert, I am a very social being. I love being around people, but now it's all digital. Uh, does FaceTime re um, replace real human interaction? I don't think so, but you got to do what you have to I do. I happen to be tending to my aging parents during this period and that's also proved extremely edifying. i really look forward to ramadan going to the masjid actually because i don't really have time to go during the year but it's nice because this is the time where like everyone goes at nighttime to like meet and like uh pray tarawih. like i look forward to tarawih but this year it's been odd um not being able to do tarawih prayers in person There are some days where I'm just, I have to stop and think like, is this really happening? And I think what's the most frustrating thing is, and I, I've compared this a lot to, um, to school. I mean, I just recently finished my doctorate a couple of months ago. There was always like this end goal at the end. It's like, all right, here's the deadline. We're gonna reach it. And you gotta struggle to get there. The issue with this pandemic is we don't know when it's gonna end. Prior to the, the month of March, my plan was to go onto the academic job market and seek a tenure track position over this fall. Well, the joke's kind of on me because literally overnight, the academic job market as we know it has wholly collapsed. And um, for the next year, at least, universities are instituting across-the-board hiring freezes, um, major furloughs. There are even talks of some job offers already being rescinded. So, needless to say, it's kind of bleak. Now, I, at face value, the, the, the first impulse was panic and cynicism, thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've invested all these years of my life pursuing a doctorate, for, and for what? Having said that, I refuse to pity myself. Uh, if, um, there's a sad sense of like how stores are closed. You see these signs everywhere saying, sorry customers, due to COVID-19, uh, we're no longer open. Um, some of them still and like- I'm especially uh, concerned about what this pandemic and the devastation it is now wrought on the university system will mean for intellectual thought moving forward. I think that as we seek to reconcile with this pandemic, it may behoove us to fundamentally think the way we train in, and nurture intellectuals more broadly. I have used this as an, as an excuse, or not as an excuse, as an opportunity to 
actually sit down and read the Quran and like read the verses, understand. So the way I look at it is this is another way of practicing Ramadan versus always having to go to the masjid. Um, I do miss like going to iftars with friends, catching up with people that I don't normally catch up throughout the year. So while certainly this is going to be the most unique Ramadan of my lifetime, I also think that it may actually have some spiritual wisdoms that previous years haven't. Healthcare is a huge operation and a chain with many links. In the clamor of pots, pans, cheers, and blue angels, we hadn't heard much from the CNAs, or certified nursing assistants, who do everything from feeding and washing patients to checking their vital signs and keeping them company when no one else can. So this week, our producer Fred called one up to find out how his shifts changed during the pandemic. Here's Dwayne. A certified nursing assistant is a person that you're really doing the nurse's job in a sense. The only thing you're not doing that the nurse does is handing out medicine. You have an assignment, and it could be like maybe eight residents on your assignment. In the morning when I get there and get myself together, you knock on the door, you greet the patient, good morning, Mr. So-and-so, asking how they are, you know, introducing myself, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Having their breakfast, they could eat on their own, which we encourage. They didn't eat. If they have to be fed, I feed them, wash them up. These days, they really don't come out of bed that much, so, you know, just wash them up, put on a fresh gown or whatever. Change the linens if I have to. Buff his pillow, make sure he's comfortable. Put the bed low, raise them up a little bit, and then I move on to the next one. You have to wear a gown, you're constantly wearing gloves, you're constantly washing your hands. You have to wear a gown, you have to wear a mask, face guard, something on your head, over your head, for your hair. And you're constantly washing your hands, you're always washing your hands. I do my job, and I do it well, but it has to be a little quick sometimes, because there's so many residents. I just try to keep my head up, and then it's hard, too, because some of the residents you get attached to. And I've lost, like, three of them that I was really attached to. You get friendly with them, and they get to know you. They become, like, friends. They become your little favorites, you know, like Mr. Arm. You know, I just lost him. That was, I love that man, but he's gone. Some of them get a little despondent because you can't have no visitors, so they don't see family anymore. They get kind of... Confused, they have what what you call um, sundown, which is like they get real depressed when it gets 
dark because nobody came to see him and stuff like what well, they used to come and see them all the time. Some of them get real sad and, you know, they, some of them give up. Some of them don't know what's wrong and why am I here and stuff like that. I've been at this place two years, and in two years I have several residents become like friends of mine, and now they're gone. I mean, people people go, of course, but kind of surrounded by it. Like, you're with these people every day, and you get to know them. You get to know their families when their families will show up. It's just so, ugh, it's, it's, it's. It's just crazy. It's sad. You know, it's like it came out of nowhere. Like, another disease, which we won't talk about, but everybody know what I'm talking about. Lost a lot of friends to that, too. But I just try. I, I pray every morning before I leave my house, and I say, Jehovah, please... Let me have the patience today. Let me do a good job today. Let me care for these people. And keep my head up. Because sometimes it's really, really hard to keep your head up. Food news, quickly, we have less than a minute. Anybody? Food news? Food news? Going once. Food news? Um, nothing. My father nothing. called me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, cool. from um, Paris, randomly. Oh, I, this is the first time I spoke to him throughout the whole quarantine. And um, one interesting thing that he told me, I guess, a way to stay healthy was um, when you go outside, before you go outside, cut up a piece of onion, wrap it in some tissue, and stick it in your nose before you put your mask on because he says that um, over there they say that uh, the onions help like, you know, detoxifies the air before it goes into your body and whatnot. Just wanted to share that with y'all. That's amazing. That's Did such good onion news. No, no, I don't think I'm gonna try it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take his word for it. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I think that one for a Voltron moment. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone can top that. So, meeting adjourned. Still not quite sure just what to believe, we looked in the last place anyone should for information and weren't totally surprised that we couldn't believe what we heard. Where do we start? Is there a virus? They are demolishing the official story of this hoax. This is news that your government is not telling you. They're taking a naturally occurring virus and then genetically modifying it to make a more detrimental virus. Which they're breathing into their system. To hemoglobin. And when they hook up the 5G, that activates the nanobots and it kills you instantly.
they took the SHC014 strain of the coronavirus and brought in the backbone from the SARS coronavirus and then inserted HIV and MERS on top of it. Creating a technological sub-reality of 5G to which the human mind will be connected via AI in 2030. I have had further confirmation by a molecular scientist specializing in oxygen. That this is actually a chimeric version developed here in the United States. And it was taking place right after. Bill Gates was involved with a simulation of a pandemic before um, the um, thing uh, came to public attention. People are sending out telephone messages on video, but you don't hear our news people saying one word about this. Medical phenomena that don't make sense. There is no virus bacteria that jumps 13 feet. Beaming this desperately destructive. 60 gigahertz FIVEG on humans. Not only in the street, they had a lot of them in the ocean that were swimming. It affected the fishermen that were out there. They dropped dead right in the boats. By electromagnetic, technologically generated Wi-Fi. It's just, it defies every logical aspect of science and medicine. I have no medical advice on this topic. I'm simply asking. COVID-19 conspiracy question mark. I know from all the postings on the internet that 5G is um, being um, um, sprayed for the last umpteen years despite a moratorium by the U.S. government. Can we start to consider that just perhaps, just maybe, this thing is not what we are being told? There is no COVID-19. We demand to know the truth, and if we don't get that truth, we're coming for you. And please take my comments with a grain of salt. Don't believe anything I say. Do your own research. And again, it's hammered. Hi, I'm Nicola Forrestal and I'm over here in Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti. I studied the definition of pandemic at school, but would never imagine it the way it is right now around the world. Several Haitians don't believe that COVID-19 is very dangerous and currently present in our cities. Unfortunately, they keep gathering, they don't protect themselves the way they are supposed to. Since March 19, the government cancels school and non-essential activities, which makes our streets empty most of the time. Almost every day, new numbers come out with the new confirmed cases and increase the stress level of those who monitor the situation. Based on what I see in the news, it feels like we're about to experience the same feelings we had before the earthquake of 2010 when we are obliged to get used to death, corpse, etc. I'm uncertain about the future. Will I die this year? Will I lose my parents, my siblings, my friends soon? Nobody knows. All the activities have been cancelled at my job. Now I have to enjoy my house instead of the ocean where I used to work on a daily basis before the coronavirus. My nephew and niece keep asking me for a date when they'll be able to see their friends again at school after winter. My neighbors that I used to help with their reading skills to a small literacy program keep calling me to express their depression. 
they tell me that they feel like they have two options. Die from COVID-19 or die from hunger. Deep inside, I feel weak. I feel broken. But I have to be strong to help them have some hope in the future. I started helping them get some masks, food, gloves, soaps with my own savings. How long am I going to be able to keep up? As some old leaves are falling from trees right now and new ones are growing, hopefully life will become livable again. My name is Sasha Whittle. I am calling from inside my bathtub. It's the most soundproofed area that I have. Um, a story. I got yelled at for not running in a mask by an old woman. Um, and I felt so bad about it that I cried afterwards. Um, my coping mechanism has been running, even though <clears throat> I know there probably isn't going to be a marathon for years to come. So I just try to push that part out of my mind. Um, I hope, I have a lot of hopes right now. And some of them are big, like I hope that by some miracle scientists can come up with a vaccine now so that we can all come out of our homes and be together, but um, a smaller hope is that I hope the blister on my toe goes away. I, okay, something that has made me scared and smile is all of the massive spiders that I've seen in quarantine. First, they make me terrified and we scream and then I laugh about it. Basically, I am doing the same things as everyone else. I tried to teach myself something on the piano yesterday and then I realized the piano is much harder than I thought it was. <laughs> I miss my brick family. That's one thing. Um, starting a job three weeks before a quarantine was probably not the best timing, not ideal. I barely know my coworkers, and now we, um, all we do is Zoom and Gchat. Uh, my girlfriend started a job while quarantined, so she's actually never met any of her coworkers. Um, they shipped her a laptop. So, I have been seeing some insane nature that I normally would have never noticed. Um, I am on a pond right now, and there are these osprey 
that hover on the edge of the pond. They fly above the pond and look down and then dive for fish. Um, and then they catch them and they fly over us if we're outside or if I'm running, holding flopping fish. And I don't know how I've never noticed that and thought about the fact that there are probably millions of fish in the sky at all times. Like what? I don't know how I've never noticed that there are fish flying around all the time. So that has been one of the weirder things that I've noticed now that I have less to pay attention to. Um, or I guess less that I'm preoccupied with. Um, fish in the sky. Okay, bye. Weekend weather with Griffin. Weekend weather with Griffin. Hey everyone, it's Jeannie Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high 65, low 52. It will be rainy. Saturday, high 71, low 54. It will be sunny. Sunday, high 71, low 56, it will be cloudy. Did you know that about 8 million people live in New York City? Thank you for listening, Brooklyn! Oh, and one last thing. This week, I lost a tooth. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shireen Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Fred Brown, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, and Taylor Cook. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. And if you'd rather reach out the old-fashioned way, call us at 917-719-0021 and tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and anything else you want to get off your chest. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while you're there, follow at BrickBrooklyn for updates on all the arts, music, and cultural programming we're presenting at Brick by Home. And if you want to perfect your presenting skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio.
Hello. 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 Oh, wow. Echo. Why did, why did that happen? Mm. Why do you have two? You have this two. Is, this, oh, that's 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 that. Oh, that's so, <laughs> so cool. cool. It's so cool. But you, but guys, you guys can't have them. I, I have two because... Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, um, let me... Oh, oh, so good, good, though. I'm definitely going to It's like the voice of God. Yeah. yeah it's, it's Say something like... Oh, it's gone. <laughs>